0: The two ships departed England in 1845. HMS Terror and HMS Erebus were packed with the latest technology of the time. Steam engines, reinforced wooden hulls, and an onboard heating system to keep the crew comfortable. They set sail with 129 souls at the start of summer, northward past Scotland and Greenland, then on to the Arctic Circle. But neither the ships nor their crews would ever be seen intact again. This week, we talk to a modern British explorer who's made a career of expeditions in the Arctic to see what it's like to visit the North Pole and how to make it home to tell the tale. Welcome to the Get Lost Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Joe Sills, a freelance writer, photojournalist, explorer, etc., etc. Today's guest is a speaker, an author, and an explorer who is as bona fide as they come. He's a former soldier and firefighter who's journeyed alone to both the North and South Poles. He's scaled Mount Everest, and he's led more than 30 major expeditions around the world. He's a fellow of both the Explorers Club and the Royal Geographical Society. He's also an explorer-in-residence for the University of Warwick. His name is Mark Wood. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to speak to you.
0: It is our honor. First things first, what is an explorer-in-residence?
1: It means that I can be attached to a university without without the... skills or knowledge to actually be at a university
0: oh great so that's like <laughs> something i need to do <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a it's well basically um i think warwick university is one of those really big sort of recognized universities within the uk and it's just a, a stone's throw from where i live um and they did a big sort of campaign a few years ago to um, sort of bring it into the modern era if you like and uh, reboot it etc and they use different diff- people from different disciplines to in their advertisement um so i was part of that advertisement and i also worked with their education outreach as well at the time which worked well with my expedition so th- there's a lot more depth to the m- to my sarcastic sort of answer to you.
0: <laughs> for for some reason i'm imagining this university it looks sort of like a castle you know
1: Oh, because it's in England. Okay, well, um, yeah. I see. Because it's Warwick, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Warwick Castle is nearby. Um, so, yeah, and, and, but no, it's. I mean, the campus is enormous. It's, it's, it's like a city in within itself. But it's a, a very prestige sort of university. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah. uh, so, something interesting is I know that most Americans are, are familiar with England in the sense that oh, we know London. Maybe we know a couple places outside of that. Um, <clears throat> But you actually live in one of the few places that I think almost every American has heard of because we learn about it in school. And you live in Stratford upon Avon.
1: I do. I live uh, Avon. I live in Stratford upon Avon. Yeah, Avon. Um, Avon. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, so I live six miles south of uh, Stratford upon Avon. Yeah, and it's uh, William Shakespeare country, Cotswolds. It's as bad as English as you can get it. Um, We're nearly at the very center of the the UK as well, so equidistance from any sort of um, coastal area. So what would you Um, say
0: for an American traveler that goes over there, uh, what should they see?
1: Within my area Mm -hmm. or within the UK? Within your area specifically. (laughs) Within my area, you're looking at, if you buy a box of um, biscuits from the UK, an old tin of biscuits, it will have a thatch cottage on the front of it a, a beautiful old world sort of english scene that's the cotswolds it's full of the house next door to me is 600 years old my house is 150 years old it's one of the modern builds here um so it, it's kind of just really old and it's quite spooky as well there's a lot of ghosts and that around here apparently um but um you know you head into stratford and it's uh, i mean because of lockdown it's very different but you got your beautiful theater there and uh, with all the shakespearean plays and it's all set up very very nice and gentle for tourists to come in so it's um and i've got two dogs so i'm constantly walking these dogs across long open green fields with beautiful views of the english countryside that sounds so
0: awful go. terrible
1: well my preference is the, the contrast is where i work and that's in the arctic so you've got this 360 of white horizon compared to a 360 of of green fields of uh, England so um yeah
0: if you guys want to hear a breakdown of a a great british road trip you can check out season uh i think it's season 1 we do the great british road trip with a buddy from plymouth but today we're not going to talk about british road trips so much as we are british exploration we've got a british explorer here on the line and Mark, I wanted to ask you a few things. Obviously the the history of British exploration is infamous and it's glorious and it's muddled and it involves colonization and scientific breakthroughs. I mentioned earlier that you're a member of the Explorers Club, but that's sort of an undersell. You're actually the chair of the Great Britain and Ireland chapter. So I want to ask you, how does a modern British explorer today differ from one 100 or 200 years ago uh,
1: that, that uh, that's a great question um I, I love i love questions like this um so 100 150 years ago 200 years ago the empire within the uk was was at its you know at its prime the empire meaning that you know wherever we go we would plant a flag and we'd send off people to different areas of the planet to um try and discover you know the north pole south pole jungles mountains sea desert whatever it might be um so they launched these expeditions the very the difference nowadays is not only with kit equipment kind of you've got satellites mapping areas as well and the technical equipment's changed i think the big difference nowadays is if anybody's really active in exploration they'll understand this next bit the big difference that we have nowadays is we have a real responsibility to rescue teams. Um, we go out, I could rock up on the edge of the Arctic Ocean and start doing an advanced sort of expedition toward the geographic North Pole across the Arctic Ocean, um, but you've got to have the okay from teams that are gonna extract you if anything goes wrong. If you don't have that, then you are just putting in li- people's lives at risk anyway. And the issue with this is because the ice is so bad now due to climate change, um, there's very few, if not any, expeditions that are sort of heading from land to polar regions because planes, helicopters are just not committing to that unpredictability of the ice. Um, So that is a true difference at the moment. The, the The ice has changed that much. Um yeah. So
0: when you say you're gonna go out there, rather than these sort of visions of the Arctic where we see, you know, ships that are like stuck in the ice and there's great wooden ships with masts and um <clears throat> that's very different from what the Arctic exploration scene is today.
1: Yeah, it it is. I mean, we we really look towards the pioneers for inspiration because at the heart of a pioneer is the sheer determination and grit and fire within the belly to to explore to seek and explore and you know somebody like uh Ernest shackleton who's somebody i have to mention is because he was one of the great pioneers of, of of leadership uh in one aspect his leadership techniques are, uh, are used today but there at the time they were pioneering the way he used to speak to his men and um, sort of think out an expedition and keep his men alive. So, But, you know, nowadays we, re- we rely on locals to get us to places. Some say we're sort of m- mothered in that respect. But the hardness, the grit of, of spending 50 to 100 days on ice is still there. The, the toughness is still there, the mental strength that you acquired. Is still required. Um, It's just that communications are better and equipment is better. You can move more efficiently. Um,
0: And and what about your interactions as a British explorer with Indigenous people?
1: Well, the world is. I I can. I can. I can uh, link visually with teams in Inuit teams. In Resolu Bay, High Arctic Canada, or Fjord, High Arctic. I can link with my guys in Nepal that I run a company in Nepal for trekking and climbing. And I can link with these guys visually. You know, you couldn't do this years ago. It's it's very, very different. So we have advanced in that, if you like. Um,
0: When you watch an old Bond film, I mean, it's like so many of the technologies that he had in that old Aston Martin are like just real life, and they're in your pocket now.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think uh, and uh, you know one of the questions I had once was, you know, okay, you you do these expeditions, but it's not the same as the days of Scott, Peary, Shackleton when when you had you know they didn't have these phones or, or location beacons or anything like that. So it that you you kind of got it easier. But you know, if they had that technology at the time, they would have used it. And and if you think about it, shackleton's expedition the the failed expedition if you like um but he rescued his his men um he he used uh, frank hurley to photograph the, and document the expedition and if he hadn't have done that then the schools nowadays all over the world and i've given loads of talks in the u.s and i know that children over there look at pictures of shackleton's ship stuck in the ice and the men hauling the the, the uh life rafts across the ice. Um they can see the vis the visual side of his expedition. So he brought that pioneering pioneering days to life. So he was a he was a, a visionary in that sense.
0: And that expedition, if listeners are unfamiliar with it, um, it doesn't get as much play over here as, as it probably does in Britain, but the Ernest Shackleton uh expedition through antarctica is probably the one you're talking about where they're eating penguins to stay alive and and sort of making a raft to try to get themselves to safety and it's just one of those tales of of gripping mystery and horror and triumph all at once
1: i think i think it was um an example of a boy, you know, which we, we we, sounds sexist, but a boy's own expedition. I'm sure you understand what I mean by that. It's the books that I used to read as a kid. And the this, this ship left London, the ship sailed to, to uh, Antarctica. The guys got out on the ice and dragged these life rafts, headed towards the, well, tried to head towards South Pole. We got stuck in the ice. They tried to move to an area where they could put the life raft off and And head off uh, to some sort of landmass. They ended up on Elephant Island. Shackleton then decided to go to South Georgia to get a whaling. I mean, it's just a a constant sort of movement of of survival, really. Um, An incredible, powerful story that was documented visually. visually. It's an example Um,
0: of too of what can go wrong, and like how when you're out there in the Arctic or in the Antarctic, you're just totally at the will of Mother Nature in a lot of ways um mark i want to talk to you about your education outreach before we dive into the main topic today Uh, we talked earlier about a time you were on everest and you're using technology in in a way that shackleton might have you're live streaming this climb of everest to school children back in australia
1: this is true i mean you're talking about live streaming now and in covid i think um, families are starting to, to use it a lot more and I know that it's used in business and that, but we, we understand live streaming now a lot more. But I was using this in 2013, which in you know, technical, historical sense is a long time ago. Um, and Skype was three years old at the time. And I went into the Skype's office in, in London and said, look, I've got a good idea. And the idea was to link with these 10,000 young people around the world in different areas. We linked with a couple of schools in the US and there were schools in... Australia and Canada, um, area, Nordic areas as well, and uh, a school in Africa. So all these different schools were linked to my expedition to try and summit Mount Everest. Um, and there were visual links. So they had classroom up environments from Kathmandu all the way through the lower valleys, right up to um, just below the surface of Everest itself. The satellites allowed us to use a, what we call a began unit, which develops its own sort of um, space where you can link. you can use Skype. Still very difficult, but we could get about 15 minutes of, of usage. The pure example of this is um, in the death zone on Everest above seven and a half thousand meters, which in in just normal terms, it's about two miles above a cloud level. So if you look up, then that's where we were operating. And if you've seen any pictures of people climbing Everest, this is when they're in a line, and they're struggling just to put one foot in front of the other. And the oxygen levels are at 30%, so the oxygen isn't getting around the body, isn't getting to the brain, and you're fighting every single moment of that, that movement through the clouds. At that point, I was strapped to some ice so I wouldn't fall off the mountain, and I was linked to a school in Australia, where 200 plus young people were sat in a sports hall, staring at a screen with an explorer live on Mount Everest in the death zone, talking to them live. Um, And I think no matter what was said in that 15 minutes, that experience will live with those young people for the rest of their lives. Just that connection with somebody in a unique area on the planet. And if we were to end the conversation now, you have just understood as a listener why I explore. I go to the extreme areas of the planet and I link directly with young people to try and inspire them to reconnect with the environment. I think that's the the main aim that I have.
0: I think you're doing that by making it real in in a way that, probably the Apollo landings did when people first saw that on TV. And it, you know, as fuzzy and black and white as that was, it reached out across space and time into their living room and said, in your face, you can do this. And now we have a new generation of space explorers. And
1: I think, I think not only that, Joe, you also have people who think differently about life differently about themselves their own environments so what that space exploration did that moment in 69 did for people for young people it made them believe in themselves to begin with they might not move out of their area they might stay within their family area they stay within the village but it gave them a sense of of who they were Um, So you're not just creating future astronauts, you're you're inspiring people to enjoy life, to enjoy the planet that they're on. One of the biggest things that came out of space exploration was, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the astronaut. He he took a picture uh, called Earthrise, which was the first picture from the dark side of the moon of Earth. Uh, William, William uh, oh, William Anders. His name was. Yeah, he, he um, was. Uh,
0: that was Apollo Eight with with Borman, Lovell, and
1: Anders. You got it. Yeah, good stuff. Oh, it's good speaking to people who know that stuff. Um, well, he said, I don't know, if it was that mission, but he said that they went. It was a it's a misquote, but they went to the moon to discover the moon. But when they looked at the Earth as a jewel sitting in the darkness of vast space, they actually rediscovered the Earth. And I think that's quite. When you do these expeditions, it's not necessarily the expeditions; it's a reflection on the person who's who's involved visually or or, or um, following the expedition, if you like. We have a. We I think as explorers in this modern era, we have a true responsibility to act accordingly, and to showcase the planet for its true, true worth.
0: I, I totally agree. And Mark, as we dive into the Arctic now. I want to challenge you to redefine your personal definition of children because we're going to lead into the Arctic with a trio of adult children that, that you helped guide to the magnetic North Pole. The, these adult children had an audience of 350 million people. They hosted until recently a show called Top Gear on the BBC. And now they host a show on Amazon called The Grand Tour. But talking about uh, James May... Richard Hammond and Jeremy Clarkson. Um, You were actually the guide to take them on their famous North Pole expedition where they drove uh, a trio of Toyota pickup trucks to the magnetic North Pole.
1: I was, um, I was part of a team to say you're the guide, I think is a little bit too much. I was part of a team. There was a very small team. There's myself, a doctor, female doctor um both working on snowmobiles using pulling uh inuit comatox which are like trailers with all the equipment on the three trucks had one other guide in it and then the pathfinder was an inuit guide which makes sense Um, and he basically looked for routes. he just had a snowmobile Uh, originally i was bought in to do the pathfinding but because i had a trailer it was virtually impossible to seek out a route, if you like, through the ice. So I sort of, um, I expressed this, and and to start off with I went over and I worked with Richard Hammond. Uh, he had been training with dog teams, he was then with me for a week, just him myself and a doctor w- working in Resolute Bay, and then the rest of the guys came out. I do want to state though, that I've done over 35 major expeditions, training, leading teams, solo staff, etc. This is one that I, I know people are interested in, but I'm not proud of in the sense of the the um, um, how it, people perceive it through petrol heads, going through a pure environment. I was brought in as somebody who could look after these guys, keep them alive, um, and that's what we did, allowed them to film. Um, but I'm, it's not what I'm about, really. I'm about environmental awareness, etc.
0: So I would say that, um, I want to ask you about some of the pushback you got on that at some point, but I would say that as someone who hasn't been exposed to the Arctic in person and has only seen it otherwise through nature documentaries, to view this through a lens of pop culture uh, actually had a lot of merit and actually captivated me to get me to learn about Climate change in the polar regions, and to see it, and to bring it again across the world and into my living room.
1: Well, that actually, Joe, that's that's really nice to hear. To tell you the truth, I mean, may, maybe you know we're we're live now, but maybe it's lessons learned. Lessons learned for me that I shouldn't just presume that you know whatever you put out there, there's going to be people who criticize, and there's also people who are going to be inspired. And and I know we've we've spoken at length before as um, about how you've been influenced by certain things as as have I, um, but yeah, I mean, I think what what that program gives is, I know it's a jokey program, but there is an honesty about it as well. Um, they are who they are. Um, if you you know, they are sort of like you know. Uh, they should be living in cities, but they're thrown into these jungle and desert, nice and situations, which is comical in itself. And and really, the way that I film now, and we do our documentaries, is I try and be who I am, the vulnerability of me, the honesty of me, so the the viewer can really connect with you then to see that they're not this great sort of six foot ten explorer. It's just a just a normal guy. So you can actually understand and uh, the, what they're trying to put across on screen.
0: Let's take out the element that it is, you know, is three guys that are, are world known among uh, gearheads or petrol heads, as you say. Um, but let's just talk about taking three people who have no experience in Arctic environments, other than maybe like a, a, a racing course in Sweden or something. But let's take that out of it say there's these three guys they need to get from here to there they have to survive what do you teach them how do you get them to understand the gravity of what they're about to do
1: it's very it's very difficult a lot of their learnings came before i I actually met them and you saw that on the program where they were um, learning different skills i mean um but when they're out there it's not just those three guys there's a whole camera crew and and sound men and people like that around them. So there's, there's probably about nine on our team, maybe 10 or 12 or something like that, I'm not too sure. Um, so it, it's about go, approaching it as a, as a whole thing. Um, you can't You can't teach people how to survive in the Arctic properly until they're in that arena. And that goes for every expedition. You can go to Norway and you can go to areas to train. But the Arctic is a very, very different area to to live. It's very harsh and extremely beautiful and surreal. But within a heartbeat, it can change. Um, So our job was to train them as much as possible so that if there was a storm or something happened, they weren't just looking at us to help them out. Right, they would do some of the reaction themselves. And were they able to um, do that? Did they have to
0: apply any of that, or were they just sort um, of in the trucks? In,
1: yeah, in the in the, I think mainly to do with the cold because it gets the cold can really get into your bones, and it can it can freeze you in the sense that you like you see someone standing there trying to think of what their next move is going to be, um, rather than just acting. You know, the worst thing you can do is being decisive out there. So a few times I had to go up to them and, and the other guys as well. I don't just want to pick on these guys, but I had to go up to them and say, look, you know, what are you doing? Do you need a hand or whatever? So our job was just to sort of nurse these guys along, you know, and and they did a great job. They, I mean, I, I said afterwards, it did, I, was, I wasn't I was a great fan of Top Gear, but they they were really good. I th- I think if I was going to describe the three of them, if you want me to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Richard Hammond was somebody I got on really well with, but just because I spent more time down time with, and he, he's a very determined guy. He's He didn't want to look like the fool on TV, even though it comes across that sometimes. Always. yeah, and,
0: Pretty much always.
1: Yeah. But he, he trained really hard, and he, he's a very fit guy. Um, Jeremy Clarkson is just Jeremy Clarkson. What you see on TV is what you get, generally. Um, and he's... he's what we call over here marmite there's a thing over here called marmite it's a spread and you either like it or you freaking hate it okay okay um and he's that he's that he's marmite (laughs) so it's it's one or the other and he is a controversial character yeah what i what i do like about him though, is that he did he's got a he really helped out the military guys he he does a lot of they do a lot of charity stuff which they don't talk about so i'm happy to say that for them Mm -hmm. But the guy I really did like was James May and the reason being was he was really super honest. The very first time I met him he was, he was stood there in jeans with like a t-shirt on the in, in the base camp you know and I was fully rigged with with stuff and I said are you okay and he says I hate it, it's cold and I'm desperate to get home and he maintained that misery all the way through the expedition <laughs> but at least he was honest um, and I, because really, honest if you're dishonest in the Arctic, it can kill you. If you say that you're warm but you're cold, then it will affect you, it will affect the rest of the team and the expedition's over. So he had a great deal of honesty about him and I, I enjoyed his company, actually.
0: So let's take the protective shell of the pickup trucks and the, the crew and the BBC funding out of this and let's get into the real, uh, more serious Arctic exploration that, that you do on a more regular basis. Describe for our listeners what it's like to put boots on the ground when you first arrive in that polar region and describe what you see, what you hear, what you feel as you're trekking
1: alone to the North Pole. Um, before this, it's chaos. So you spent, I spent three years, so I'll pick on the, say, Antarctica if you like it would be an easier one to pick on I spent three years in preparation giving talks trying to get sponsorship doing media stuff and the reality of a solo expedition to the south pole over 50 days is that when that plane drops you off and leaves then you are on your own and I remember standing in the ice and just doing that just having silence and it was, the silence was so deafening and I looked around me and there was there was just an horizon, just a white horizon with a very f- thin blue sort of film to it and I looked up and the clouds were basically just, you know, my TV if you like so it's just a white horizon with silence and when you're in that situation over 50 days um, unless you have mental stimulation it can really ingrain on you, can drive you mad now I I had an iPod with me at the time and I lost the iPod on the fourth day of the expedition my iPod was white (laughs) great choice, they make black ones I know, I've got an orange one now so um, but I lost the stimulation of music or books Um, so I remember on the fifth day of the expedition, I I sat in my tent, and I sat there for 36 hours. I didn't move. And I was trying to think of every way that I could give in. And I phoned a friend back at home, and I'd already told him that I'd phone him up in the first week. Because everything you do in life in the first week, in the first section, is really tough. And you try as a human being to think of every excuse to get out of it, and that's my worst fear, finding that excuse. This guy talked me back on my feet, but I needed to physically start putting one foot in front of the other and move forward. After 3,000 ski steps of counting them, I stood there and thought, I cannot do this. And I put my ski sticks in the ground and closed my eyes and I thought, where do I wanna be on this planet at this very moment? And I started to drift my mind to pine forests and the ocean where I walk my dogs I started to walk my dogs in this sort of vision that I had and I started to put one foot in front of the other. And after three hours of walking my dogs and smelling the pine and smelling the ocean, I came out of this dreamscape and I was back in Antarctica having covered 6.8 whatever nautical miles. And basically that's how I, I reached the South Pole. I, I created the d- dreamscapes. At certain times to take me out of the situation.
0: Did you do the um, South Pole before the North Pole? When that sold Yeah. To? Okay.
1: I did that because it's um, if you do it the other way round, then you've got a whole sort of eight months to recover before seasonally you you can head up to the to the North Pole or longer than that actually. Um, but by doing the South Pole first, you finish early January. Then you are back out on the Arctic Ocean. Um, probably about uh, two months later, eight you know six to eight weeks later. So you did a
0: for listeners. It's basically a back to back solo South Pole, solo North Pole.
1: I did, but the second part of the expedition, as I mentioned at the start, of our the problems as modern day explorers, the the Canadian rescue teams um, wouldn't allow a coastal expedition that year, which really was devastating for me it was completely devastating i'd i'd done the first section of the expedition i was heading up to the coast i was training i open water training this is just within a couple of weeks of of putting my body through 50 days of a solo to the south i was jumping in the ocean and training in the north pole and then they said they wouldn't do it so then what i did was i i got a russian long-range helicopter that dropped me off um, it's always a russian
0: helicopter mark it's always a russian helicopter <laughs> yeah
1: um and they dropped me off on uh, uh, an arbitrary point on the russian side of the arctic ocean and then just dropped me off and, and disappeared and within eight weeks i was then heading towards the north pole with about 200 nautical miles to go so it it was going to be a world first um i mean i I can't claim that because it's um, it's not a coastal expedition. In my world, you can't do that. You know, it's like um, a marathon runner starting at mile eight.
0: Right. It's just <laughs> not quite all the way. But this is still a fascinating yeah. tale because I love a good uh, Soviet military tale. So,
1: well, it it a couple of things happen, or loads of things happen. By the way, but um, a couple of things to mention. One, I was linking with young people so every expedition I do engages with young people and so that, so that was that and I also developed a, a documentary that went into festivals won awards etc because not many people actually film themselves in these raw environments but film the complete rarity of it you know it's, uh, so that, that was good um, but something really weird happened when I reached the North Pole and I don't know if you know about this Santa but, Claus. Oh no. <laughs> I did do I did do that and if there are any young people listening I have met Santa but that's another story for another iPod I think another podcast. Um, what happened when I reached the geographic north pole was extraordinary. I um, the geographic north pole is on the Arctic Ocean and is the most isolated hostile environment you'll ever wish to meet really. So you expect nothing but ice there. When I reached the North Pole there was a wedding going on.
0: I'm sorry. T- I, I, Hold, on a yeah, I, Hold on a second. Take me back. Take me back.
1: <laughs> there was a wedding going on. So there was a cross there of some skis. Um, and the great, as you know, this explorer, the great uh, polar Norwegian explorer, Borg Ausland, was actually getting married at the North Pole. Um, and he had um, bridesmaids there. He had uh, a vicar, I suppose. Um, and... Uh, loads of people there, mainly russians a helicopter russian helicopter there and i came round this corner or ice and i gate crashed um the a wedding at the north pole what stop this is crazy are you sure this you wasn't a, a, ha-
0: a, halluc- <laughs> a hallucination like
1: well they looked at me and they went what the hell and i was like what's going on here and Borg gasland is is a hero of mine he he wrote to me before my North and South Pole expedition and said, "Pack light, think ahead, leave your fears behind," which is something I have as a mantra really for all my journeys now. But to shake his hand at the North Pole on his wedding day and to gatecrash that that wedding was was something that I'm really proud of. You know. All right, you absolutely
0: so, have to tell everybody everything you possibly can about this wedding. How do, what does a wedding look like at the North Pole? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the the bride is is beautiful in her dress, but is wearing thermals underneath. Uh, they told me. Um, uh, so, and it's it. I mean, there's a there's a photograph of of me in the wedding party. If you Google Borg aslan Matt Wood wedding, you'll see the write up they did in the in the uh, Norwegian newspapers. And one thing that Borg said to me was that do you want to jump on the helicopter and head back to the Russian ice station and join in the party, etc. So he invited me back very, very kindly. But I would just covered two of the most extraordinary areas of our planet and spent three years in an, as an unknown trying to get this expedition together. And I said, no, I'm fine. I'll, I'll make my own way back. It was about 25 miles, uh, tw- uh, back, you know, 35K or whatever. Um, so he disappeared and then to, to answer your question, you, you asked me right at the start of this section how it feels to be like alone. I had 70 plus um, million people below me on the planet heading south. And I was the only person on that planet to stand at the geographic North Pole. And I spent a, two days there camped. I drifted a little bit, so I drifted off the pole itself. But nonetheless, I sat at the North Pole... In complete silence with the rest of the human race south of me and I must say that the only feeling I had was um, feeling humble I felt extremely proud and humble to be so privileged to be sat or stood at that that area of the planet Uh, and it really does even now I mean this is years even now I feel a little bit choked remembering that moment of being alone and it was truly remarkable and and it makes me feel privileged that I gave up everything in life I gave up the rescue service I gave up a pension I gave up a, a house my friends to dedicate my whole life to paralleling exploration with education so to stand alone at the North Pole where very few people have been especially soloed was was a was a real moment in my life
0: you know what you did up there as well (laughs) what did i do you faced your worst fear because right there borg gave you the opportunity to give in
1: yeah i suppose that's true um i'd completed the expedition but i you know i kept that rawness just for that extra four or five days um just to sort of complete it for myself really. Uh, there's plenty of weddings that I can go to and there's plenty of, you know, times that I can celebrate with people, but to to hold on to that privilege is, is, uh, is, yeah, it took a lot out of me. So yeah, thanks, I've never really thought of it like that, so it's good of you.
0: So I want you to keep that moment in your mind where you're alone at the North Pole, the helicopter's gone, thumping away in the background, and juxtapose that with today because today you are in the process of raising funding for another solo expedition to the north pole and because of climate change it could look very very different from the same one that you just went on
1: yeah this is therapy by the way i'm I'm sat here in my house with an earpiece in and it it seems like i should be lying down it's very therapeutic um yeah um I, i feel that I've I'm, I'm now two de- two decades of exploration and when I come round to doing the expedition in 2022 it'll be eighteen years dedicated solely to exploration and and when I say that I don't have another job this is what I do um, so it's not based around money or being rich or anything like that it's just, it's a true calling to understanding what it means in this modern era and I, I make that statement at the start because, it does come to this focal point of I want to engage with young people I want to document this in the best documentary we can do and on a very personal level I want to push myself physically and mentally beyond what I've done already and by doing 100 days alone is laughable to a lot of people out there who know about Polar Exploration because to survive and actually to pull the other man equipment, because it's unsupported. I won't get resupplies. To do that physically is very tough in in, in itself. Um, But then to create an education program, not just to do it and to be that physical sort of presence, but to create an education program to engage with people, uh, it just adds a lot more weight onto the project itself. So this is tough from the outset I can tell you what the expedition is but this is tough from the outset Um, but this is my last big final expedition meaning where I gain I look for big sponsorship after this it will be a lot of guiding I dedicate myself to the explorers club to giving talks to young people around the world that's what I want to do but this is my last big physical effort of, a, of an expedition.
0: We're talking to Mark Wood as a polar explorer. He's working on a new expedition called Solo 100, a platform for change. When you say Solo 100, let's talk about what that really means, Mark, because you alluded to it. But 100's not really an arbitrary number. It's so far beyond the known record for Solo Polar exploration that it'll actually be a Guinness World Record when you achieve it.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not about Creating records are not about setting um, records where people can beat. That's the danger in this. If I do 100 days, there's bound to be somebody out there who wants to do 101. But you've really got to know what you're getting into. This is this is life and death if you haven't got the experience backed behind you. Um, and and I, I know what I'm getting into. So even though Guinness World Records are attached, it's it's not my leading sort of um, force in this. However guinness world records is respected around the planet and is something that children love to engage with so it's wonderful that they're actually part of it um i don't know what the record is i don't think there's been a record set i just think by chance that somebody did 70 or so days which begs the question why did not i do 70 or so plus one day <laughs> that would be the the sensible option but um 100 is a figure that I came up with first Um, and then we realised that it might be a Guinness World Record. 100 is just a figure where I think that we can create 100 films as well. So you've got the expedition of 100 days, which is solo unsupported and unaided. So it's uh, no resupplies. I'm pulling sledges and I'm heading through this this route that I'm going to do. The purpose of the 100 days is to have to engage with young, well, a young person from different areas of the planet. So if you think of somebody in Africa, Australia, America, Canada, uh, New Zealand, wherever it might be around the world, you've got this one person. Their responsibility is to do a piece to camera. Mm -hmm. So they will say their name. They will say where they're from, their village, their city, and then they will say, their concerns with climate change within their own personal space. Because people think too big on this. Climate change is the planet. But if you think of the enormity of it, you won't act yourself. You think it's too big to deal with. So the fourth thing is their pledge towards climate action, personally. So their pledge towards their family, their village, whatever it might be. Now I know There are a lot of people in the world who don't believe in climate change. And I I think, okay, well, that's fine. There's always going to be a balance in this. But try and think of it a different way. We're looking at cleaner, purer, more efficient societies. Cleaner air, more efficient societies. Companies around the world are going to invest in future technologies like wind and solar panels. There's two... Examples of many. Right. So, this is about advancement of industry, profiting from climate action, and engaging with young people. So, the 100 films will coincide with the expedition. Every day, I will do a piece from the ice. I will do an update like we're doing now. Maybe we join in with you, Joe, and you can put it on your platform. Yeah, let's do it. So, people can hear me every day speaking about what happened. And then I'll introduce the film where people can look at these young people around the world
0: so let's talk about climate change before your eyes it's not like you've only been to the polar regions once or twice you you said yourself over 30 expeditions around the world and, and many 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 of those to the north pole um what have you seen personally in this nearly two
1: decades i've seen the destruction of my own movements around the planet And I've already mentioned this in the the podcast about how we we have a responsibility to rescue teams to come and get idiots off ice like me. (laughs) You know, we're heading across the ice, something goes wrong. That man who's flying the helicopter, that woman who's flying the helicopter, she or he has a family back at home and kids. So we have a responsibility to these guys. And these guys aren't generally operating where we want to go because the ice is so thin. This is unheard of. This is unheard of. And last probably eight years ago was the last time I might be wrong with that, but the last time they did a coastal expedition. And I think that to the North Pole, and I think that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing a breakdown of the ice so much that it's very difficult to operate on there. And then the knock on effect, very quickly, is about the breakdown of society within these regions, breakdown of culture, the movement of, um, of animals heading south like the polar bears um, and also migration um, being affected as well, affecting crops, affecting how we eat, where we eat and it's a knock-on effect which is rapid. This is a rapid change that is going to happen within, uh, within my lifetime, I will see it within my chip I haven't got children, but within children's lifetime, they will see a distinct change. And even though you, we have sceptics, and I've said that, you know, I've got nothing wrong with sceptics. We're human beings. It's always the balance of of a, of a an opinion there. But it, it, people have got to tune in to, to why we want climate action. And it's because we're looking for more, more efficient ways of living, more purer ways of living. Um...
0: When you talk about a coastal expedition, will you describe to people what the terrain is like and what wildlife you might face along the way?
1: Sure. I'll focus on the Arctic Ocean, but coastal uh, on Antarctica is the same. You know, you're heading from the coast on land uh, or on ice, solid ice, to the South Pole. The only problem with Antarctica is it's a landmass with millions of years of ice on top, is you get crevasses which are breaking up on there. So, you, you know, you've got your, your added problems in Antarctica as well. Um, Antarctica is governed, it's not owned by anybody, it's governed, which is great, because the purity about about this great continent of the planet, the biggest continent on the planet. Um, the Arctic Circle is very, very different. It's an ocean, the Arctic Ocean, um, and the, the, the countries around it of Canada, and um, you've got... Um, Alaska and also uh, Russia and, and Norwegian sort of um, areas, as well and Greenland, of course. Um, so, you've got these land masses around it. So, when you step off the land, you're heading on to frozen sea ice. That's what you're heading off on. Um, so, this is very um, different
0: than millions of years of, of ancient ice. It's just sea ice that is not. Yeah, yeah I mean, at all. you've
1: got old sea ice on there. I mean, this is, you head back to when we started about the pioneers. You know, the ice is very solid, it's very vast as well. Um, Even back in 1969, we mentioned the moon landings as well. Um, A great uh, Yorkshireman from the UK called Sir Wally Herbert did an expedition from Barrow in Alaska and headed uh, dog teams um, with four of his men and loads of teams with airdrops as well, um, heading across the Arctic Ocean from Barrow through the geographic North Pole all the way over to Spitsbergen. Now, if you look at the map and look at the ice, you cannot do that expedition anymore. It's a vast ocean in between Barrow and the North Pole, generally. So just 50 um, years
0: ago, what was possible is no longer possible
1: at all. In short, yeah, in short. It, it's just ridiculously impossible. So um, that's, I mean, that I think... So Wally Herbert's expedition is a pure example of how the ocean, ha- in, in polar exploration terms, has diminished.
0: So the terrain that you're going across, it's, it's, it's ice, and then there's, of course, polar bears you have to watch out for. Have you ever seen one of them up close?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen up to 18 bears during the course of my time in I like how you the, know, they,
0: you counted every one of them,
1: obviously. Mate, you count them. I mean, generally, they, they're alone, so they, the the male bears operate alone. Um, the female bears, when we head up there around about late March time, summer solstice is kicking in, so they're coming out of their semi-hibernation. They don't hibernate as such. That's a, a myth. They Their heart rates don't drop as much to class as a hibernation, but they do den up, if you like. The, the mothers come out with the, the young, so that's a very... Dangerous time to bump into them. Um, the the thing about polar bears is is that um, when I was operating first there in two thousand and three, there was about fifteen thousand polar bears known to be in the Canadian sort of Alaskan side of the of the Arctic Circle, um, and now there's about twenty five thousand polar bears. So it's actually increased, which is a, a figure you might you might be surprised at. that
0: is surprising. What do they attribute that to?
1: Well, mainly due to the restriction of hunting. Um, a lot of people, um, mainly people in the US, <laughs> head up to that region to do the hunting of the bear. It's one of, I, I think it's one of the big five they talk about, the lion, the elephant, the, the polar bear. So they head up there to sort of kill the bear and then the, the communities get money from it, etc. In that sense, it's good for the communities. But they restricted that and the way they hunt them as well. They used to get snowmobiles to sort of knock them and sort of disorientate the bear before the hunter took the shot. So they've restricted that now as well. Wait, they
0: would have just run a snowmobile into a bear?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is—I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but this is what I've heard, you know. And I'm telling you, this Mark, is back in,
0: some weird stuff goes on up there. That's what I've learned today.
1: Uh, this is back in the, the back in the day. I mean, nowadays it's a lot more. It's governed more. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is why you've got your increase in polar bears. But there isn't a there is a danger with this, because the ice is, ice is melting so much. Bears are now drifting more onto land because they're heading south. Humans live south. Um, which is a problem to, for that interaction. But then you also get the problem of them living on land because people think, well, they live on land, so they're going to evolve and they're going to survive. And that polar bears need a high diet of protein of, of seals. So that is the problem they face. They're seal hunters, primarily seal, seal hunters. Um, so you do get a problem there.
0: So, what's the problem with seal populations?
1: Uh, nothing, but it's just the bears actually heading out on ice and surviving on ice to go and hunt the seals. Oh, because the ice is, the issue.
0: is disappearing. They can't go hunt. Yeah. I understand. Uh, Mark, as we kind of wind down this show on the Arctic, it's just been a, a great journey of the mind to one of the far reaches of the world. Uh, this show is, is going to come out around Christmas time, so I feel like it might be appropriate to ask you about the time you met Santa Claus.
1: Well... A lot of people have scoffed me at this, have a little go at me about meeting Santa because I'm 53 years old um, and, you know, I, I sort of loved Santa when I was a little, little boy and that and I kind of lost the idea of him being around and then I started to do expeditions and um, I did this expedition in the South Pole. I met him first. I was about 35 days into the expedition. This is on the BBC um, so I filmed this and it got onto the BBC okay. and I was in my tent doing an update, like I'm talking to you now and I was doing a, an update for everybody And I heard a sort of, uh, let me just do this. You hear that tapping? Yeah. Um, so I had a tap on my tent and at the, I unzipped it and there was this skinny guy in a red suit with a, and I thought this can't be sandy He's so skinny. And he said to me that he was heading towards the North pole where he lives and he was near in there, and uh, he'd just done a whole winter of delivering presents. And that's why he looked so skinny, because he, he, he was low on sort of protein and that. Um, and I said to him, look, you're in Antarctica, you're miles away from the North Pole. So I sat there in the tent with him and looked at the map, and we looked at sort of where he'd gone wrong, and it was in, in New York. Um he was going around Manhattan, in New York, and he headed around the wrong waves, and he's heading south into the north.
0: He probably went to one of those pub crawls, you know?
1: But I, I, I don't know. You know, I, you know, this is probably going out to kids, so I would say no. He probably went to um, a milkshake bar or something like that. Oh,
0: yeah, naturally, yes. Yeah, yeah
1: that's right. just stay with it, Joe. Um, so... Uh, he, so I pointed him north and said, "Look, you know you've got to head this way." And he and he made his way, and I waved goodbye. And, um, and then the next time I met him was actually on the Arctic Ocean. He recognised me from a couple of years back, um, and he came into the tent, and uh, he he um, we just we just had a chat, and uh, it was kind of nice meeting up with him again. But so um, had he put yeah. on
0: a little weight by then?
1: He had, and, and I had as well, <laughs> um, because the thing about expeditions is you lose loads of weight, but you do like your food when you get home. So I kind of whacked on a little bit of weight, and um, we, we we both got on. He's a super nice guy, um, and uh, yeah, he's. Uh, he's he, but he, he did say about he did say one thing to me which stuck in my head uh-huh. that the good list and the naughty list is absolutely real. So if there's any children listen to this at all. That leading up to Christmas, you've got to listen to your moms and dads, your parents, your guardians, and be really good because that's the way that that he will come in and and um, and de- deliver his presents. So.
0: Well, what an awesome story! I hope that he was able to share some of his cookies with you at least.
1: Well, it, it was a it was a unsupported expedition, so I let him have those. <laughs> so yeah,
0: F- yeah fantastic Mark thank you so much for joining us today and for your time uh, I would recommend for all you listeners please give Mark a follow on Instagram at Mark Wood Explorer couldn't get easier than that uh, visit ExpeditionSolo100.com that way you can learn about his upcoming expedition it's going to be absolutely fantastic I know that our family here at the Get Lost Podcast will do whatever we can to support it and spread the word
1: Thanks, Joe. I mean, it, it, it's, really, it's really good to talk to you and I'm really pleased that my story is getting out to a new audience. Um, I, I, I've written a couple of books, so hopefully you can put that out on the, the podcast as well sure, go if ahead. anybody wants to buy them online. There's a, there's a Solo Explorer book which basically goes into what we've just talked about, but adds in the photographs and loads of other stories in there. And I've also done a photographic book which takes into the account of the Everest descent, working with dog teams and top gear in there as well so if you put the link out then um if you buy that then we'll get some signed copies out to people that want to get that
0: we're going to put a link in the show notes so everybody can check those but mark what's the best place for them to get information about your books
1: uh if you go on to markwoodexplorer.com that's my website and there's a little shop on there, and you can you can buy them from there.
0: MarkwoodExplorer.com, at MarkwoodExplorer on Instagram, and ExpeditionSolo100.com. Please check it out for some real bona fide exploration. Thank you, Mark.
1: Stay cold.
0: The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast. Visit us online at GetLostPod.com and please leave a review for the show.